if you just ask, please tell me again, and what can I help do to help you feel better? It's over so much faster. And then you move back to happiness <laughs> or to where you both want to be. And if you try to litigate who did what wrong. another episode of Dear Men. Dear Men 2020, guys. It's happening. The new year has arrived. And I'm really excited about my guest today because one of my commitments in 2020 is to um, be more involved in the film industry and to be um, more active in terms of seeing live productions and also film productions, especially since I live in Los Angeles. So I would love to welcome filmmaker and author Roger Nygaard to the podcast. Thanks for being with us. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. So you've done a number of different projects in your life, and I feel like we could talk about a ton of stuff, but we're going to focus on your upcoming film, which is The Truth About Marriage. And the catchphrase is, all the relationship secrets nobody tells you. And I really, um, I really liked this this part in the description about um, Roger Nygaard attended countless weddings and found himself asking, why do people keep getting married when 50% break up? What makes them think they will beat the odds? So I would love to hear more about that and just about your journey. I'm assuming that's part of your journey in terms of why you made this film, but what was your primary motivation? Well, primarily I'm confused about why I'm such a failure at getting to the altar. I mean, that's where it all started. <laughs> okay. What's wrong with me? You know, I think everybody has inside them a, a being that's insecure and wondering why they're such a failure. And it, what I found out is it's really not your fault. I mean, it's partly your fault. Yes. I mean, you know, it, it, it's you. You've got to work on yourself. But our culture and our society asks us to behave in certain ways that are almost and virtually unreachable. And so everybody's frustrated and having a hard time. And there's conflict and counseling and why does it have to be so hard? That was the core question that I ended up setting out to try to solve. Why do relationships and why does marriage have to be so hard for people? And what was your um, conclusion? Like, I mean, you, you have a really impressive list of all the people that you interviewed for this film. It's sort of like a who's who in the relationship world. Um, it, you know, people like Neil Strauss and Julie Schwartz Gottman and John Gottman. And um, I, I'm so curious, like how, you know, your own sort of understanding of this whole topic evolved as you were talking to these experts, like was like, who were the people that you were like, you walked away from that interview being like, okay, I get, I understand this whole thing better. And what were your takeaways? <laughs> Well, every single one of them taught me something, and I tried to have a balanced palette of people from the psychologists. I've talked to, I don't know, 15 or 12 psychologists, maybe more, lost track, and relationship counselors and uh, relationship experts, matchmakers, a divorce attorney, sexperts, and other authors, evolutionists and biologists. 
trying to answer that question, why is it so hard? And it, what it came down to is that men and women or the masculine and the feminine is a, however you want to look at it, because a man could be a more feminine or more masculine. It's not really gender based. It's more relationship energy based, but we're talking at cross purposes. We're, we're not talking about the same things. We think we're talking about the same thing. My definition of love might be different from the person I'm dating or married to. That's uh, the, uh, you know, the language of love theory, for instance. But uh, the basic issue is that we're, we weren't, we're not talking about the same thing. And counseling tries to get us onto the same page. So we are talking about the same thing. Part of the first step is to define your terms and your priorities. One of the number one recommendations that all the psychologists had and the divorce attorney, <laughs> pretty much everybody, is that the best recipe for success in a marriage or relationship, but primarily you're talking about marriage, is before you get married, is to have premarital counseling, which the goal of which is to create a mutual priorities uh, list between the two people. So you have the same priorities. One of the things psychologists have found is that sometimes religious marriages, people get married through their religion or under the auspices of a religion do better. And it's not necessarily because they're religious. It's because they're forced to have counseling before they get married. It's part of the, the regulation. My brother did that. They had to speak to the, the minister, question them. And they had to fill out a questionnaire and there was compared. And are you guys on the same page? It's about knowing the rules before you get involved, getting into it. What are the rules? Otherwise, if you're both playing by different rules or different expectations, of course, there's going to be a problem. And so one of the things I put in my book is I collected all of these things that the, the experts say you should talk about before you get married in a personal priorities checklist that a couple can talk about, go through and talk about before they get married. Or, you know, it should be before you can start a relationship. But you need to know, if you want to boil even that down further, to what is a person's core values? Because they don't, that doesn't change much over your lifetime. They're pretty much set by the age of 25 or so. And if your core values are out of sync with someone, what might seem kind of fun and quirky and challenging at the beginning will become really annoying 10 years later when you disagree. Uh, or, uh, as one of the experts put it, you should, get, uh, you should get outraged by the same things. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm interested in this. Um, if, you, if you can be more specific. So you mentioned priorities. Um, does that mean like one person wants to prioritize having children within the next few years and the other person wants to wait? Is that what you mean by a priority or what, you know, what would come up when the experts were talking about examples of this? Well, that's an excellent one. Yes. Children is, is at near the top of the list, or it should be at least as far as what do you think? For example, if you were to take a list and then rank it numerically with what's at the top, is children at the top? or your spouse at the top of the list? Which one's more important? And then there's children from an earlier relationship or your spouse's children from an earlier relationship. Are, if you're going to be honest about that, is one of those more important to you than the other? And it's about being open about that before you get involved so you're not angry or frustrated 
by finding out that your partner values the child more than they value you. Now, sometimes we'll say, well, I, I, I love them equally. I love my spouse just as much as my children. But if you want to be honest about it, who are you going to, who, who do people more likely, are they more likely to change, a spouse or a child? Right? They're, you're more likely, you're, who changes their children out? They don't. The, child, the child ultimately becomes the number one priority in most cases. And so that creates a new power structure, a new power balance between a couple once a child is born versus before the child was born, before there are any children. Yeah, of course, we are each other's priorities. Once yeah. a child is born, well, now that child is a priority over you if I have to choose one. And sometimes they have to choose between one or the other. Am I going to go to work today or am I going to stay home and take care of the child? Or am I going to do what my spouse wants me to do? You're going to be faced with all these questions every day. If you just talk about it beforehand, at least you have a chance of knowing where your priorities lie before you, you get involved. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially if you're, like you said, dating someone that has a child already. If you, you know, like for me, I would assume that the child is my man's priority. And so on a holiday, if he's like, I need to go, you know, out of state to be with my child. I wouldn't have a problem with that because it would be like, well, that makes sense. Like to me, the child should be the priority. So I would be going in on the same page, like you said, but if I went in thinking I should be the priority, like we just got married, you should be spending time with me. Then we're going to have a huge fight and it's probably not going to go well because like you said, we haven't even really touched on it. And I went into the marriage assuming I would be the priority. And he went into the marriage assuming I would know that the kid was a priority, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm curious since you have done all this research, what percentage of couples do get premarital counseling? Very few, but it's the ones who are religious that are forced into it that at a higher percentage at a much higher rate do so. And even that little bit helps. I'm guessing it's less than 5% of couples. If you're not forced to do homework, why would you do it? It's just yeah. not natural. Humans don't do it. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, when we all get a driver's license, we need to take an exam and we need to be tested on knowledge and we need to have an idea of what driving entails. When we get married, we have no exam. We have no requirement to understand what it is, how it works, what the social science says about it. We just, we can just get married. Same thing with children, but it wouldn't, it doesn't actually have to be that way. We could live in a culture where it's like, oh, premarital counseling is required for everyone that's getting married. Like we could do that. That's the thing that our culture could do. Yeah. And smart cultures or cultures have that have learned over time, we do better as a culture by forcing certain behaviors like a driver's test or premarital counseling that religions as an institution, they've realized it's better for our couples to be, to force them to talk to the priest, to have three sessions or whatever, fill out a form and talk about it. They've learned this over time that they do better. They stay together better. They're happier. Things go better. Yeah. Which is, you know, ultimately extremely important because that's the family system that raises the next generation. And keeps, yeah, and keeps people in, in, within the institution. You know, you should talk about even where do you want to live? What, what's your dream home? Do you like Ikea or antiques? 
<laughs> you know, if you don't talk about that and you can't stand your furniture, your husband's furniture, or your wife's taste in whatever, there will be a problem with that at some point. I have a friend who's in the movie, a comedian named Joe Yannetti, and he had this couch that he loved, loved it. And his wife said, do you mind if I sell the couch and get a new one? And he knew if he said, I love this couch, it would be a fight. And so he said, honey, let's get a new couch. If that's what you, he knew this, the, the better choice, the happier choice for him, even though he was giving up his, the couch he loved would be to get one that his wife liked as well. Aw, that's he, a kind of a sad story. He learned that over time, right? We don't, at the beginning, we have these very strong boundaries we try to maintain. And, you know, they, of course, the, the, that word compromise comes up. And one of the therapists said that there's two great fears. And one is that you will not, you'll lose too much of yourself if you compromise too much. And you have to compromise some amount. And so finding that right amount is what's challenging and where the conflicts come and when then they end up in his office talking about it because they didn't talk about what kind of sex is off limits or how often they think sex, there's a minimum that maybe someone needs or uh, is flirting okay or who's going to take care of the children or whose last name is, should, we, should we take? Are vacations important? Is saving important? All of these things should be talked about. And uh, when they are talked about, it can be a fun thing. It can be a fun experience to get on the same page with somebody, and, and it can be very rewarding. Yeah, I'm curious if any of the um, I'm curious if any of the psychologists or therapists you talk to actually do premarital counseling for non-religious people, or are uh, they yeah, all- they they certainly do, and the divorce attorneys and the prenuptial attorneys all recommend it. And it's a big part of, of what they do. If someone's open to it, it's really just counseling to talk about certain things, certain core issues that are important. And are they seeing the rates of those go up? Are there more couples that are looking for guidance before they get married? I don't know the, the statistics on it, but I I know they'd love to see the rates go up to a hundred percent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, <laughs> um, all right. So, in terms of let's say um, the the premarital like uh, either counseling or you know, there's a number of books. I'm curious in your research if you ever went into any of those. Like a thousand questions couples should ask themselves before they get married. Did you? Because couples don't necessarily have to get counseling. Although I think that's the best way to do it because there is an elder of the tribe, you know, moving you through the process, but there are also books and things that couples can do. Did you talk to anyone about that? Yeah. Well, wherever you get it from, whether it's a counselor or you just get a book and do some research on your own, as long as you do the research, you do, you do talk about these things together. However you get there, doesn't matter as long as you get there. And it's great to do it with, like you said, an elder or someone who's been there before, you're going to get there a lot faster. They're going to help you achieve your goal much more quickly and successfully if you do it with someone who has experience. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So, all right. So can you talk a little bit about, um, 
again, kind of like back to your motivation because you've never been married and you get this question a lot about why you are so interested in marriage when you've never been married. What do you say to people who ask you that? Right. How dare you talk about marriage? You've never been married. This has come up quite a bit. And that's one reason I set out on this journey, being a single person who has failed multiple times to get to the altar. I've been in love and thought I was going to get married, and then it didn't happen three times, three, three separate specific times. And after the third time, you, you know, third swing at the pitch, you got to go, okay, what's wrong? What, what, I got to improve my, my batting average here. And when people ask me, you know, this interesting that this came up at a film festival and one of the psychologists was at the festival at the question and answer session at the end of the screening with me. Uh, His name is William Doherty, who wrote a book called Take Back Your Marriage. And I asked him, what did you think about me as a non-married person asking, you know, interviewing you? And he said that. Normally, when people come to him as a therapist, they already married people or divorced people or somewhere in the middle. They already have a theory of marriage, and they're looking for him to confirm what they already believe. He said, when I came to him, I asked all these seemingly naive questions because I had no theory of marriage yet. I'm this outsider looking in, trying to understand something I have no idea about. And that way, the, he said it was the, most, the best interview he's had because for that reason, I could go wherever the data, wherever the answers took me to find the answer and not try to confirm something I already suspected or am trying to advocate for. Who's wrong? Who's right? I just want to know what's the answer. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like you can be objective in a way that other people can't because they have perhaps so much emotion around their theory of marriage that they can't, they, they sort of just want to be affirmed in their beliefs, which is really different than, I would like to know what you think, or what is the sort of truth around this topic? So it sounds like you're, you're kind of the perfect social scientist in that way. Well, you put your finger too on one of the biggest problems in relationships is that people tend to, in conflict, want to confirm that why they were right in this conflict. Yeah, and that's not the uh, the path toward getting back to happiness. Right. The, the path toward getting back to happiness when there's conflict is, first of all, the masculine needs to learn how to listen better. Yeah. Men are horrible listeners, and they want to prove. Let's maybe not. Let's say it's the there's. The logical one and the emotional one. Typically in strong relationships, you've got a masculine and a feminine, logical and emotional. Everybody has both, right? But to a larger extent, one has more than the other. You don't have a good relationship when you have two masculines together or two feminines, two logic people, two two overly emotional. Relationships work best. They were designed by Mother Nature or however, wherever it came from to have this balance. They work better as a team that way. And so when there's a conflict, the feminine or the emotional one needs to be heard. And the logical one is trying to prove, read back the tape. You said this. See, this proves it. that doesn't get you there. What gets you there is, and the Gottmans are very big proponents of this, is when there's a conflict, what you should do is before you respond, if somebody brings something up that they're upset about or that 
they, they feel strongly and they need to talk about, what you should do is, after they ex- say it, then ask them a question, like a big, que- broad question about, I understand you're upset. Can you please tell me again, explain to me what it is you're upset about? Now, the second time they tell you, they're not, not so emotional. They're more, um, they, they know you're listening. You just asked for, to, 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 for more information. It proves you're listening and you're, you're showing empathy by asking that question. Now that the, the problem or the issue or what's causing the hurt has been stated the second time, you just say, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. And, and what can I do to help you feel better? If you just ask, please tell me again, and what can I help do to help you feel better? It's over so much faster. And then you move back to happiness <laughs> or to where you both want to be. Yeah. And if you try to litigate who did what wrong. <laughs> litigate is a great word there. I feel like that's a really good, that's a really good example of the, the tendency. Like, um, you that's know, what men want to do. The masculine, the logical, they want to litigate. And so I, that's primarily the advice for the masculine. The advice for the feminine is if you have an issue, if you're upset, and you want to talk to your partner, you don't spring it on him or whoever it is. You make an appointment. You say, when is a good time for me to talk to you about X, Y, or Z? Maybe today, I hope. If not, perhaps tomorrow morning. And when they give you a time, you write it down, you make an appointment. Okay, thank you. And then you come back the next day or whatever time was set. And you say, is now a good time like we discussed? And that way, the masculine needs time to sort of prepare to know it's coming. They're not good with ambush um, problems, ambush arguments. They're much better with knowing it's coming. And then you limit the talking time to 15 minutes because after that point, the masculine, they call it, it gets overwhelmed. There's, they call it flooding. There's just a limit to how much the masculine brain can take yeah. of relationship discussion. So set an appointment, spend 15 minutes, and you tell the, your partner how you're feeling. And so if both sides can utilize those parameters, things go so much better. Those are great. Those are really practical um, tips in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make it concrete in terms of an issue. So for example, if let's say um, my husband and I are going to a holiday party and he was late and I felt kind of dropped. Um, my question is if, you know, it's great to, to do the appointment thing and what I've noticed is sometimes I won't know what to do in the moment. So like he shows up to the party, he's late. I'm upset because I feel dropped. And I also feel like you said you'd be here at this time. So I feel like kind of let down, like you, you know, you gave me a promise sort of, and like you didn't follow through on it. And I understand that life happens and everything. So often what I notice and what I've seen some of my women friends do is like try to swallow it. Like, oh, it's not that big a deal. I'm not really that upset. Of course, you know, he's got his life and he has work. And of course he was late, but then I'm acting cold towards him. I'm not actually, I'm not actually over it. I'm just wanting myself to be over it. And so in that, in terms of that, like if I say, Hey, like, you know, I'd like to talk to you about something, when would be a good time? 
Like we're at the party. Like, should you talk about it then when it's coming up? Do you make an appointment and then just try to not be cold? Do you know what I'm saying? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, do you want to enjoy the party? Then, then wait till tomorrow. If you, if you, if you're, if you really need to go home, well, then you got to talk about it now, but either way, suppressing it, repressing it is not going to be helpful because you're going to be frustrated and it's going to come out later when something else happens. And all those things that you've been holding back are going to flood in one moment and it's going to be a big fight. So in, in that scenario, you just have to decide if you can, what, when is the best time to arrange an appointment and then you do it. Part of what's going on for the man or the masculine is that there's this continual push and pull between the desire to be together and the desire for freedom. And men are continually orbiting out. This is very much Mars and Venus. You know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Men are orbiting away and then missing their partner and then orbiting back and then orbiting away again and then coming back. What the experts I talked to suggested is that, and both people, both parties have to do this, is that women have to accept that men are going to do this. That's their nature. And so they have to allow men to go away or to go to their cave, as John Gray says. Yeah. To go to work, to go to golfing, to go fishing with their buddies for a weekend, whatever it is. And men have to understand that women need to know that their connection is, is solid. And so when you're going to disconnect, the concrete advice is men, needs to, men need to announce their disconnection. Honey, I'm going to go fishing with my buddies for the weekend. And at the same time, announce their reconnection. And I'll be back Sunday for dinner with you. And I can't wait to see you then. Yeah. So now she knows exactly what to expect. She's been told what's, what's going to happen. And then the man has to keep his word. And yeah. if he can't, if he's going to be at home at 7.05, call, always call and protect your word because your word is the most important thing you have. It's your reputation. Because once yeah. you lose your reputation you know, and, and the trust, it's very difficult to build that back. Yeah. And I think that that was kind of my, my point in terms of the, the party where the person's late or like I, I wasn't dating a man, but I remember once I was preparing for a party I was like throwing a party and he said he would be home by eight to help me prep and like move furniture and just do the stuff that needed to be done and he had something happen and so he wasn't home till like nine nine thirty and I was so pissed when he got back like I didn't know what to do because I was sort of like well you weren't here when I needed you and you told me that you were gonna be here and I didn't hear from you. Like, I didn't know what was going on. So I just kind of felt dropped. And like, I don't think our friendship ever really recovered from that. Like, I was never honest about how much that bothered me. And he wasn't really, like, he didn't totally address it. Like, it wasn't really, it, I don't know, it just wasn't addressed. And I never, and we weren't dating or anything, but I, I, I still remember it. Like, it's been a couple of years and I still remember that feeling of like, well, how am I supposed to trust you know, what you say now, like now I can't trust you to kind of like be on my side. It's very, yeah, it's very understandable why that would stick with you now and why, why that was so impactful at the time. It's 50% his fault. It's also 50% your fault because you need to ask for what you want. No one can read your mind. Men especially are horrible at knowing what women want. It's not innate. They need to be told. 
I, when I, I was dating this girl once and she was unhappy with something just like you described. And so I said, give me a list of what you would like for me. And she, her eyes brightened up and she hopped to it and gave me a list of 10 things she expected from me. And I loved it. I was like, great. This is the roadmap <laughs> to keeping her happy. And one was as simple as open car doors for me. Okay, okay, I'd never really done that for anyone before. And I'd never thought in this age of equality that, that we should do that anymore. But she really wanted that. And so since that time, I've always opened car doors for everyone. And I thank her for teaching me this and a few other things. You know, always tell me you miss me. That was also on her list. So you have to ask for what you want. And then once men know, then it's his fault. Because you've got to treat men like bumbling two-year-olds when it comes to emotional intimacy and interaction. Their brains are not as advanced as the female brain is toward dealing with emotions and feelings and relating as a couple. I'm curious in the, um, on that list, like if you, like if, if most of the things were a surprise to you, or if you had kind of like had a sense that they were there, but <clears throat> seeing them written out was, you know, a good, like, <laughs> yeah. like how many were like, wow, I had no idea about that. Or five of them were like, yeah, that makes sense. Well, everything was a surprise, but it all made sense. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I was so happy to have it, you know, <laughs> so happy to have this list of things. It made life so much easier. And I wasn't, I wasn't in trouble anymore <laughs> as often anyway. Yeah. I don't want to be in trouble. And I'm stepping, I feel like I'm stepping into landmines that I don't know exist there. Because I think you, as you pointed out when you started talking, nobody teaches us how to be in a relationship in high school. They teach you everything else, but then you got to figure it out by trial and error. And it's painful and hard and difficult. And relationships suffer needlessly because we don't know these simple things. And when I was making my documentary and writing the book, I tried to coalesce some very simple, concrete things out of it all that couples can do just to change the trajectory of their relationships and their happiness as a couple. Yeah. It occurs to me, what I like about the list that she made was that she included something like always tell me you miss me when you're gone. And I think that's a good example of, she knew that that made her feel loved. She was self-aware enough to know, like, this is something that has me feel loved and has me feel like, um, you haven't just totally forgotten about my existence, which I hear from a lot of women of like, it sort of feels like their man is out of sight, out of mind. Like they don't, it doesn't really matter to them when they're not around, which for a lot of men, that's not true. It does matter to them when they're not around their partner and they do miss their partner, but they don't think to tell their partner that. So um, I think that's a really like important uh, pairing of, you know, let's say both partners were going to make that list. You have to know yourself well enough and you have to know what makes you feel loved and cared for and what's important to you in order to make that list. Otherwise, you're just, you're just, you're just assuming that they're going to know, like you said. Yeah, big mistake. Yeah, and who knows better than you what you need? So please tell me. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. You know, it's, it also occurs to me that we, we, when we meet someone from another country and they don't speak the same language as us. Like, let's say we meet someone that speaks Portuguese and we interact with them. 
we already know that there is a cultural gap there and we're more, we're more um, accepting of that. But the truth is that everyone's family system is a separate culture. So in, in essence, everyone that gets into a relationship is having a cross-cultural experience, but because we speak the same language and we come from the same general culture, we think that we're the same. We think that everyone has the same priorities as us or as our family system, but that's not actually the case. And so, like you said, it's, it can be really confusing because for example, the, the, the kids first thing, right? Like in some households, kids are first and in some households, they're not. So if you are coming from one or the other, you're like, well, of course the kids come first. You thought that just, this is the way the world works, but that's not true for everyone. And so you're assuming that your partner is stupid because they're not, (laughs) they're not coming from the same place you are instead of grasping from the beginning. Like there are going to be multiple places where we aren't the same and where we came from wasn't the same and our perspectives aren't the same instead of assuming that they're all the same and then getting upset when they're not. Excellent point. Yeah. There is a granular, a granularity of cultures, differences between two families that we might not be aware of. And I assume that my partner wants the same things I want and they don't. I mean, there'll be some overlap, but there is going to be difference. And the more you're aware of that difference, the better chance you have for beating the odds of a 50% failure rate. So, yeah. So let's go back to um, your story. So I'm, I'm curious when you did all this research, this was after your three almost marriages? Yes. Well, what sort of launched me in this direction is I made a documentary. My prior film is about existentialism. It's called The Nature of Existence. I spent several years dealing with what do I believe in? What's the right belief system? Which religion, etc. After I finished that film, the inevitable question would come up, what's next? And as a joke once at a film festival, I said, well, after solving the mystery of existence, the only topic that's even more inexplicable would probably be marriage. And it got a laugh. And then I thought, actually, yeah, that's true. Maybe that is what I should do next because I am completely mystified by this concept. So I approached it like a, an investigator. My, I formulate a, a question. Why is it so hard for people to do everything right in a relationship? If it was natural, it would come easy. But obviously, it doesn't come easy. And then I started by reading all the books, a stack of books five feet high by all the experts. And then I sent out emails to the Gottmans and to all these other authors and psychologists to say, hey, I'd love to interview you. And those that responded, I spent the next several years traveling to meet them wherever I had to go as far away as Spain for one and England and all across the United States to interrogate them. And it's really amazing. If you go to meet with a psychologist for two hours, like I did, and if you bring a camera, it's like free therapy. They don't charge you. (laughs) I can talk for two hours about all these things that are bothering me and they are happy to help me with it. And then it's okay. Thank you. Bye. So did you, um, did you ask them about your past relationships, moments or reasons they didn't, didn't work? Did you go into any of that? I went to more of a basic level of just, I, I already acknowledged that it's a problem, that I'm having a problem. And 
something wrong with me is what I assumed. And I found it's true. There, it is, it is you, you have to improve yourself. So to answer your question, I was, I didn't really go in for personal therapy. I went in more for human therapy. What is wrong with humans? What is wrong with me? Why can't I get there? And why do so many people that get there fail to, to achieve a long, a permanent relationship? And the ones that are what we call successful, they still got to work really hard to keep it together. Yeah. And there, there are answers to that. I mean, the first half of my book is really about the problems and why that happens. And the second half is, well, now that we're here, what do we do about it? How do we get, how do we get back the passion? That's a big one. Everyone agreed. I asked people, what's the normal number of times to have sex per week? And the number was two, three, four, five times a day when they start out. And by the time they're married for five, 10 years, it's down to once or twice a week. So there's clearly a drop-off. Everyone agrees. Why is there a drop-off? And is it necessary? Does it have to be that way? And it turns out there are ways to rekindle the passion that is, I mean, it, come, it came down to a formula, actually, that it had been researched by, um, I mean, Esther Perel had talked about it, and a psychotherapist named Jack Morin first came up with what he called the erotic equation which is attraction plus an obstacle equals passion. And once you remove the obstacle, you're together. Now there's no longer an obstacle between you. Of course, the passion diminishes. So how do you re-achieve passion? You've got to replace an obstacle, put an obstacle between you and your partner again. The more you're with somebody, the more alike you become. And the more like you are, the less polarity there is. So you have to recreate the passion, the male, masculine, feminine polarity in, in order to get back to that point where you were when you first met sometimes where you really enjoyed having that butterflies in your stomach feeling. What are some examples of practical obstacles? Distance is uh, the most common one. Somebody uh, works and it keeps them apart for a while. Something that keeps you apart for any reason, if you're together all the time, you, you start to take each other for granted. And so that's part of it. Another would be um, when one of the, there's a psychologist researcher that studied this and he wanted to find out how he could have couples regain their passion in a simple way, what, what's go, why, why is the passion fading? And he had them jump, do physical activities together, like bouncing around a little hippity hop balls. And once they did physical activities together, their passion frequency went back up again. And what you do when you're dating is you do exciting things together. You go to fun places, you go to an amusement park, you go to a comedy club, you go out to dinner, you go to exciting be a beach, you do things. When you're married, or maybe in a long-term relationship, you stop doing all those things that you did when you were courting that helped you feel excited because you transfer the excitement of the adventure that you're on, the, the comedy club or the, the roller coaster, 
that transfers to your partner. It gets associated with your partner. And then afterward, you both feel excited and ready and passionate. And if you stop doing that because there's no time for a date night, there's no time, the kids, there's no, all we, we just want to sleep with our free time, of course the passion goes down. So the prescription is that you need to, you know, have like a date night, right? You've heard that you've got to have, but you do, you really need to have a specific physical activity or endeavor that you both want to do that gets you out doing something together, taking up a new hobby, learning golf together, learning surfing, going hiking, skiing, going to finding a new restaurant every week. Or every two weeks, we find a new hotel somewhere in the city and just go to the hotel together, you know, new location, new, lo anything physical and new together. That's what rekindles the passion because that's how you got there in the first place. I've heard that as well about the dopamine, because when you do a new activity, it automatically prompts the distribution of dopamine in your brain. And then when you do it together, it's, you know, like you said, it associates and it kind of strengthens your bond and it doesn't have to be like, it can be rollerblading. It can be ice skating. It can be, you know, like you said, hiking in a new area, but the best ones, at least from what I was reading was when it's new to both of you. Yeah. The best relationship killer is Netflix and chill. <laughs> Unless they're watching your Documentary, documentary so. right. We're going to make one <laughs> exception for that, of course. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that because I'd like to know how people can watch it and as well as the accompanying book because I think that's really powerful that you have put together an actual practical way for couples to take advantage of everything that you looked at in the doc. And I'm wondering, um, is it like, does it actually go with the documentary or do you do it after? Like what, what's the deal with the doc and the book? How can people watch it and find it? Well, the documentary will be released on February 14th, 2020 Valentine's day. And it will be on all the usual suspects on your video on demand, whether it's your, through your cable provider or uh, iTunes or Amazon or Voodoo, whatever you use, look for the truth about marriage. So it'll be on Amazon Prime, but not on Netflix. First, it'll be on Amazon Video. And then after the first 90-day window, then it'll go to the streaming platforms. So if you look down the, in May or June, it'll be on things like Amazon Prime, Netflix, etc. Now, the book okay. itself will come out on right. the same date in February. If you want to pre-order the book, you can go to Amazon right now and just search for The Truth About Marriage. And my website, thetruthaboutmarriage.com, of course, will lead you to these things. And is the book a workbook? Like, is it meant for couples? Can couples do it that are already together or that just got married? Like, who is it for? When I did the documentary, uh, after I finished the documentary, I thought, man, I've got so much great, helpful advice that couldn't fit into this documentary because the documentary has to be entertaining. It's really a very funny film, and it's meant to be funny. It's a comedy, really, because life is absurd. That's my perspective on life. But underneath the humor and the absurdity are layered in suggestions and ideas from these ex experts. But when I was finished, I had this great stuff, and I thought, I've got to get it out there. And the book, then, is an expanded version. It's all of everything in the movie 
and more, but more laid out for someone who wants to read about it. When I was at a film festival screening, I once saw during the screening, there was a woman sitting there with a notepad and she was taking furious notes. And at the question and answer, I said, what are you taking the notes for? And she said, oh, my friend, she couldn't be here and she really needs to get a boyfriend. And so I have to get her this information. And I said, well, I'm going to help you out with that. I'll get a book out so that you can uh, get that to her when that's ready too. And so is it a workbook style or is it like a, like a narrative style? No, it's just a read. It's a, I hope, I hope it to be an easy, fun read okay. that's informative with at the end of it in the appendix is the priority statement that a couple should fill out together. Okay. What, what's an, what would be an example of a priority statement? I'm curious. Well, the, it's two things. First is you rank numerically. So, and I, what uh, I would suggest is you each fill it out separately and then compare your work and then create a, a new document that you both agree on as a couple's priority. For instance, you would rank, you know, spouse, children, family, friends, work, your spouse's work, hobbies, sex, shopping, religion, socializing, charity work, saving, vacations. Put those into a ranking. What's most important? And see if you guys are somewhere similar to each other. If you're way out of sync on spouse and children, that's usually the biggest problem. And then the second part are several questions that prompt you to write a sentence or two. Not much. Just like, what's the absolute most that somebody should spend on a car? And then discuss what you each thought. Should you bail out each other's debt? And part of uh, the personal priority statement, what the experts recommend is you also do a financial statement. You exchange with each, with each other. This is what is normal in a, in a prenuptial agreement or a divorce, but it's good for a couple to, you know, here's what all my bank accounts, this is, these are my assets and these are my debts because they're going to become yours, 50% of it. You're going to own 50% of that person's debt or their spending habits. How important to you is spending and how important is saving? It, you know, your good credit is as good as money. And you may have a partner who maybe doesn't have debts, but maybe they don't have the same respect for your credit that you do, and your credit can get destroyed or improved by a better partner. Maybe you're going to want the one who's going to benefit the most by your partner's good credit. But also questions like should holidays, religious holidays be celebrated? What should the children be brought up to believe? What's the ideal bedroom condition? Light or dark? Hard or soft bed? Should there be a TV in the bedroom? These are all really great. I mean, I it's interesting because it's like, on the one hand, it's like, I can't believe couples don't talk about these things before they get married. On the other hand, I absolutely believe that they don't. <laughs> like, I know that. And, and, and it seems so obvious, but it's really, I don't know. It's, um, it's just one of those things that, like, I think because there's so much dopamine and there's so much connection happening in the beginning it's easy to just believe like oh we'll work all that stuff out we love each other so much and you can love each other a lot 
And like we just discussed about the cross-cultural thing, you're still going to come across cross-cultural differences. And it's, yeah, just, it's, it's really practical to answer these kinds of questions before they come up in the moment when you are, when he's putting the TV in the bedroom and you're like, oh, we're putting a TV in the bedroom. I thought we would not have a TV there. Yeah. I can't fall asleep unless the TV's on all night. Right. Wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. So, um, so the doc comes out in February and, um, my final question is, how do you how do you feel now about your sort of dating and relationship future? Do you feel more hopeful? Like, what's has it changed you doing this project? I feel so much more hopeful and more much better prepared for my next relationship, whatever's next for me, whatever the universe brings. And partly, it's one thing I learned that's very important is that you are responsible for your own happiness. Nobody's going to make you happy. You have to bring your own happiness into a relationship. And by being someone who takes responsibility for your own happiness, you're going to attract someone on that similar level that also brings more happiness to a relationship and isn't expecting you to provide their happiness. Because that expectation, if you expect that someone will make you happy, if they have the power to make you happy, they also have the power to make you unhappy. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to do it at some point. Yeah. The best relationship is when you simply make each other your priority. Yeah. And um, get skilled at listening, like you said. That feels really important. Yes. Ask women, how are you feeling? How was your day? And then shut up. (laughs) They don't want solutions. They don't want advice. They just need to offload the catharsis of the day. 15 minutes a night. If I can teach men one thing it's give your woman or the the feminine person in the relationship the masculine needs to give the feminine 15 minutes 15 minutes of listening time per night with no solutions just shut up and listen i mean say oh oh that's great i'm so sorry oh whatever offer empathy but no solutions and then a hug at the end and then your passion will return the relationship will get better Everybody, it lasts for a whole week that, that benefit you get from that 15 minutes per night. No cell phone, no TV, make eye contact and listen, active listening. That's if you, the, the best advice I can give men is if you do that, if you be, prepare yourself to be able to give that daily to your partner, you'll have a better chance. Love it. Very practical. Couldn't agree more. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Just again, a quick note. If you're interested in the course, you can find it at pleaseherinbed.com, www.pleaseherinbed.com or at my site, melaniecurtain.com under courses and have a very sexy day. <laughs>